Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. It is a very different High FM. What must I tell you? We've just walked in over here to the new studios, which are still kind of under construction, but looking very, very nice. I must say there's a lot of potential happening over here. Very exciting move that High FM has made to brand new spanking new studios. And not everything is exactly where it needs to be yet, and not everything is working exactly as it should yet. So you're just going to have to use the SMS line for today if you want to be in touch, or you can tweet, as always. So 34519 if you're going to send an SMS, and it is at Chai FM to tweet. You can always tweet me directly, as some people like to do, at Rabbi Shish. Fresh thinking time in completely new surroundings. It's uh, I feel somewhere between a tourist and a child who's just moved into a new playground. You know, looking around, there's more space than we used to have before. Looks like there's decent air conditioning, which is very exciting. I can see Craig is grinning at the fact that there's air con. We can actually breathe in here in the summer. And, of course, a healthy dose of the Jewish communal leadership that's going to walk past the window every time that we're on air. So it's great. It's very exciting stuff. As the expression in the Talmud goes, Mishane makom Mishane mazal. When you move to a new place, your mazal improves. So I want to extend that blessing to Chai FM and the whole team and Kathy and everybody involved that we should in fact go to new and higher mazal than what we had before. So it's fresh thinking time, and that means that it's uh, it's time to look at what's going on in the world, in the Jewish world, in our world, and then see it all through fresh eyes. You're invited to be part of the conversation. You're always part of the conversation at any given time. Now, it's it's a little strange, I'll be honest. It is just a little strange to have an upbeat attitude at this time of the year because it's not really an upbeat time of the year. As I'm sure you're very well aware, we are currently in the middle of what is called the three weeks, or in Hebrew, Bain Hamitzarim, which means the time in between the straits. I'm sure I'm not the first person to mention this on air this week. I'm pretty sure that every rabbi has at some point, in some way, mentioned this particular concept. But the idea of Bain Hamitzarim essentially means that go back historically. And the most horrific things of Jewish history all somehow coincide with this time of the year. Of course, on the Jewish calendar. So it's an unstart looking at the calendar and saying, oh, July. Is July a bad month? It's not that. It's the second half of the month of Tammuz, the Hebrew month of Tammuz. And the first, just under half of the next month, which is called the month of Av. All kinds of horrific and horrible things in our history, and I'm sure that that message has been drummed into people's minds numerous times. So we're not going to focus on the history of it, but I do want to pick up on one particular aspect because the single thing that stands out more than all others about this particular month, about what makes this month so downcast and for many people, actually quite frightening. People are worried. Oh, my gosh, maybe negative things will happen at this time of the year. So the one thing that is the hallmark of what this period is all about is the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. And then not very long after that, I mean, a few centuries, the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. And it just got me thinking, you know, because at the end of the day, 
in today's world where I suppose everything is virtual and you can access things at the click of a button and everything's at your fingertips and download and so forth, I wonder if we really relate to or appreciate why there would have been a value in a temple in Jerusalem. I'm not even going to get into the details of what was done in that temple because that in itself will raise people's um, – will raise eyebrows and will certainly – raise questions like, are those things still relevant today? I'm talking just simply the concept of having a place that is considered this central spiritual hub, this temple. Is it really something that we resonate with today? And, and I suppose the question that I'm asking really is, and I'd be interested to hear your feedback. I do know that it's that time of the year where many people who normally would be listening to the show are either in the Kruger Park or chilling on the beaches of KwaZulu-Natal or whatever the case is. So perhaps we have fewer people to weigh in. But that gives you the opportunity, I suppose, to share your opinion where maybe you might have thought that there's so many listeners and you're scared to expose yourself. So I suppose the question I'm asking is, what did we lose? What did we lose when we lost the temple? Whether you want to talk about the first temple or the second temple, it's, it's, that's really a moot point. Because we live in a different period in history. We live in a different consciousness now. So what did we lose with the loss of those temples? And I'm curious. I imagine that there are different perspectives that people might have. It would, it could have a lot to do with your own experience of Judaism. It could have a lot to do with your level of observance, whether or not the temple feels as if it's something that should play a role or not. So let's throw this around a little bit and see if, uh, if anybody's got a view on 34519 by SMS or Twitter. Those are our two options today at Chai FM or at Rabbi Shish. So I suppose the best place to start, and by the way, the reason I mention this is not, not because I want to get into a position where, oh, wow, this is so bad, it's a terrible time of the year, and let's just focus on all the destruction and devastation and the loss. Some people really do focus on that element, on the cavity, on the, on the whole, on, the, on what's missing from our society, from our Judaism. And that's not where I'm going with this, but I just want to understand what did we lose? Why is it significant? Why is it significant not to have a temple in Jerusalem today? What does it mean to us? What are we lacking because of it? And bear in mind that every single thing that we do as Jewish people, whether it be what we study in the Torah portion of the week, whether it be the way we look at world events, every single thing we're supposed to look at through a particular lens. And the lens is, well, how does this impact me in my life? What's the lesson for me as an individual? What's it pushing me to do in terms of how I grow, in terms of how I expand my perspective? So let's not only look at it from the perspective of history, and we'll talk about the history, uh, but, but also from the perspective of what could it teach me. And I also want to just throw out, by the way, that at this time of the year, while we talk a lot about the destruction and, by extension, the loss of the temple, equally, this is also a time of the year where we're supposed to talk about the temple itself, what did it look like? What were the various components? How did the place run? Because we're taught that any person who engages in the study of the story of the temple is considered as if they participated in the construction of the temple. So I'm not just asking the question from the point of view of what do you think? What do you think? What have, what have we lost? What are we missing? Well, what's, what's wrong with our lives without a temple in our lives? I'm asking a different question here as well. What does the temple symbolize? Let's learn about it 
What is it? What were its components? How do they reflect in our lives? And if this is a time of the year where we talk about some kind of a loss of the temple, then equally it should be a time of the year where we talk about, well, how do we compensate? How do we reconstruct? How do we fill that void? That's kind of the direction that I'd like to go. And if there's anything particular that you know about the temple, about its layout, about its structure, about the layers of holiness that existed within the temple, because, of course, there were different parts of the temple and, and the different parts had different layers and levels of holiness. So if there's anything particular that you know about it that you think could give us an insight into appreciating and understanding what it is that we lost, love to hear them. Three, four, five, one. And who's going to be the first SMS in the new studio on Fresh Thinking? Could just be you. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. I'm going to let you in on a little behind-the-scenes secret over here. So normally in the studio, it's really pristine and quiet and quite organized, although some of the people who work in the studio might not agree with that that's necessarily the case. But... As it happens right now, we're literally in a transition phase. So I'm sitting here in a studio with this paneling going up on walls and glue guns and pieces of equipment lying all over the place and ladders. So if you did hear a little bit of a smash-bang sound a little bit earlier, you have to understand that they're putting a studio together in the background, and they're doing it in utmost silence. So you can have a lot of respect for the team, the the Chai team. It's all in-house work going on over here. So... Kudos to them. Talking today about the temple. Now, before, and I see there's a few messages that have come through already on social media. So just before we look at that, I, I want to give a little bit of a background, just like an insight, you know, because we throw the word around temple, and you've probably seen pictures of what was called Herod's temple, the second temple at some point in history under Herod, who was essentially a Roman appointed governor of Israel. So he, he was a, a very interesting character, not necessarily a savory character, but he invested in the upgrade of various components of the land of Israel. So he built, for example, Caesarea, and he built the port at Akko, and he did a huge upgrade of the temple. So usually the pictures that you see of what they call the temple in Jerusalem usually is a depiction, artist's depiction of that original, not original, sorry, of that Herodian temple. So that's probably what people see, but I don't know how much people actually know about the temple. So let's just talk about it a little bit, a little bit of a description, a little bit of an understanding, what it was, what happened over there, what the structure looked like. And then I'll come back to the question because I do see that there are some suggestions that are coming through. Um, so we'll, we'll look at some of those uh, suggestions and see if, you know, if it resonates. So just hold your thoughts. I mean, keep them coming. Keep the SMSs coming. Um, and keep the, the social media, the Twitter messages coming. But just before that, so here's the concept. Back when the Jews were in the desert, there's an instruction from God to Moses, tell the Jewish people that they should make for me a mishkan. That's the original word. Now, mishkan does not translate as temple. Mishkan actually translates as a place of dwelling. In Hebrew, the word shechunah, is a neighborhood. Your shachain is your neighbor. Mishkan is a place of dwelling. So it, essentially God is telling, Moshe, telling Moses, tell the Jewish people, I want you to create a space where I can dwell, a place where I can be present, a place where I can be experienced. So that's the idea. The structure is already the next detail in the process. But the goal, the, the purpose of this process is have a place 
where God can, so to speak, be manifest. Now, God is obviously everywhere, but we don't detect him everywhere. We don't feel him everywhere. So this was supposed to be a place where you, you go to this place and you detect God. You see his actions in other words, things are supernatural in that space. You receive his communications. So that's why the messages to Moses came through the Mishkan. And then you had the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who used to wear the breastplate that had the, the various stones. They would also communicate messages to the people. So this is a portal. It's a place of connection. It's a place of unusual holiness. It's a place of godliness. So that's really what the temple is all about. The temple, of course, is a more permanent structure than the original Mishkan that was in the desert, but it's the same principle. It's the same concept. And so once we, once we start looking through the different pieces of the puzzle, it should help us just to understand what was going on in the temple and what it represents. And then, of course, from that, you can understand what it is that we have lost. Okay. Why it is that this is a time of, of, of mourning. So, in that temple, you had essentially layers. If you can imagine, like you, you often find in a security setting that they'll have layers of security. There's an external layer where certain people are allowed in. And then there's a, a more internal layer where in order to get into that place, you have to be able to have certain security clearance. And then you have to have better credentials to get into the next layer. So it's a, kind of, a similar kind of thing except that your credentials were not security credentials. Your credentials were um, holy credentials. So the first precinct was what we call the Temple Mount. Now, people, of course, still till today know the Temple Mount. And that was a place of elevated holiness. That means to say Jerusalem is a holy city, but the Temple Mount was an even more holy place. There were certain restrictions on how you were allowed to walk around over there, what kind of personal effects you were allowed to bring with you when you came to that place, what level of of purity you had to be in in order to be in that place. So already there you start to see that there's some element of purity and of uh, holiness that is required, which is not surprising because we're talking over here about having the opportunity to experience and to connect with God. So you expect that people are obviously going to have to be at a certain level of consciousness, awareness, dedication, purity, holiness, any of those kinds of things. Then you had the walls of the actual temple itself. And when you'd go through, typically from the eastern side, he would go into what was called the women's courtyard, which was now one layer up. And in that women's courtyard, you had a greater expectation of how holy you needed to be to be able to go into that area. And what kind of – you didn't go there just to hang out. If you went over there, you had to fulfill certain ritualistic requirements. You had to be there to do something. And then the next level up from that would be the next courtyard, which was called the Courtyard of Israel. And then there was an in, and the next courtyard, the Courtyard of the Kohanim, of the priests. And that's where all the, the sacrifices used to happen. So the, the daily sacrifices, personal offerings, that used to happen in that precinct. This is all open air, just by the way. It's an open air temple. There's only one precinct that was undercover. Uh, under roof, I should say, there were there were covers on the side. You could you could have stood around the courtyard, and there were these covered passageways. But the primary part of the temple itself, which is what they call the heichal, which is uh, the hall or the uh, the what should we call it? I suppose the sanctum of the of the base amigdash of the temple. So that was a place that was off limits unless you were of the priestly 
family and you were on duty. There's, there's no touring. There's no visiting. It's not open to the public. It's purely just to serve God. And behind that, you had what was called the Holy of Holies, which was only used for the highest priest and only once a year on the holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur. So that just gives you a little bit of an idea of, of what the layout was. But straight away, you should be able to find some kind of a correlation between that and your own experience. Because in the same way as the temple has layers, where some layers play a more vital role and are more pristine and more limited more intimate, whereas other layers are more public and more open and don't necessarily play as pivotal a role, you could probably say the exact same thing about us as people, that we have layers to ourselves as part of ourselves, that is, that parts of ourselves that are out there and for public consumption and can be shared. And there's other parts of ourselves that are quite intimate and holy and unique and special. And I suppose just in the same way as the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, only went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, the most pristine, intimate connection to God, only on very special occasions. So you have to assume that the same is with us, that there's certain parts of our own soul, there's certain parts of our own being that we only access on very special occasions. So that's part of what we'll talk about. Um, now that we, you've got a little bit, and that's really not even skimming the surface, of what the whole temple was about. And if you have a specific question about it, go ahead. By all means, happy to, to take questions. Um, 34519, if you want to send in a question about the temple by SMS. By the way, you could also email. I hadn't thought of that. You can also email on air at chaifm.com. And, of course, you can tweet at chaifm, tweet at Rabbi Shish. So here's Rene who says, we've lost our revealed connection to God. That's what we lost in the loss of the temple. So I think that's a, a, a very, very much aligned with what I've just been saying, right? That the temple was a place where you could experience this, this connection to God. You could experience this, uh, this, after, after just apologize. There is an SMS over here from, uh, Anna Marie, but it's disappeared because everything's in a little bit of turmoil over here in the studios so we're going to see if we can call up that sms i'll send it again meantime rena is saying we've lost our revealed connection to god that's absolutely true oh there we go thank you very much craig is the expert he's got it back um and marie says we have lost a sense of unity with the loss of the temple very profound and very meaningful insights over here from both rena and Anna marie very interesting and uh, I, th- I think that talks exactly to the core of what it is that we're mourning today would everybody agree with that would pe- i'm sure there are people out there who say we still have a revealed connection with god even today without a temple so if you're one of those people what do, what do you think what's your take on that three four five one nine via sms otherwise you can email at uh, on air at chaifm.com. You can tweet at chaifm. You can tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. So it is just gone. Thank you. Craig is like really on the ball over here. He's juggling. He's juggling. We're sitting in a studio where not everything is where it should be, but he's, he's on the ball. He's got this. So if you've just joined us, 29 minutes to the hour, talking today about the temple. We're talking about the concept of why it is that we're mourning, what it is that we're mourning, um, over here at this time of the year, loss of the temple, what does it mean to you? Some interesting suggestions coming, like we've lost our revealed connection to God and the loss of unity. Here's an SMS I did invite. I said you are very welcome to ask any question related to the temple, and of course I'll do my best to, to answer it. Here's an unsigned SMS that asks as follows, 
Why didn't God remove his presence from the world with the destruction of the temple? Such an interesting question. Love that question because firstly, of course, it presupposes that he did not. And I imagine that there will be people in our community who will say, what are you talking about? Of course he removed his presence from the world with the destruction of the temple. So that's just, first of all, I happen to agree with this SMS. Why didn't God remove his divine presence from the world with the destruction of the temple? So let's just talk about that for a moment, and we'll come back to some of the other things that people have uh, suggested that we might have lost during the destruction of the temple or as a result of the destruction of the temple. But let's just talk about this for a moment, the divine presence. Now, I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to acknowledge that divine presence is a bit of an airy-fairy term. What does it actually mean? In Hebrew, we use, we, we use the word shekhinah which comes from the word to dwell. But I don't know that we know what that means just because we throw around the term. It happens a lot. There are various terms in Judaism that we use quite comfortably, but we don't necessarily know what what they mean. So I'm going to do the Jewish thing and answer the question with a question. So the question is, why did God not remove his Shekhinah? Why did he not remove his presence from the world with the destruction of the temple? I'm going to throw the question back at the Anonymous sender of that SMS As well as anybody else who's listening What is divine presence? Like what does that really mean? It's a nice term You can throw it around You can, you can use it And you can sound very holy when you use it but, but what does it actually mean? Does divine presence mean that there's this glaring awareness of God That's almost blinding? Does divine presence mean that there's a feeling that God is with me? Does divine presence mean that there is an accelerated level of understanding? Does divine presence mean that there are miracles? What actually, what do we really mean when we say divine presence? So that's great. And hopefully with a little bit more clarity, we can address that question. Why did God not remove his divine presence from the world with the destruction of the temple? And of course, there will be people who who are going to say, what do you mean he didn't? I don't see the divine presence. There's no central location today as there was then where you experience the divine presence in real time. So how can you say he did not remove his Shekhinah from the world? Hmm, Interesting question. I love it. One of the great things about fresh thinking is that we get people who really think out of the box and who really raise issues. That's why it's so wonderful to have you as part of the show because you raise issues that were not necessarily on the agenda but needed to be on the agenda like that particular question. So anybody got a thought on that? Anybody got a thought on what Shekhinah means? So be very interesting to hear your thoughts. Here's another interesting one, just while we're throwing things around that are interesting. Here's Mordechai saying that what did we, lo- what did we lose with the destruction of the temple? Listen to this and tell me if you agree with it. Oh, there's a lot that we could play around with over here. He says, now instead of identifying ourselves as a nation, we define ourselves as a religion. Hmm, interesting. Would you agree with that? Would you say that at the time of the temple we identified as a nation rather than a religion, and today we identify as a religion rather than as a nation? I'm not sure that everybody would agree. I'm not sure that I agree with that. It's a very interesting suggestion that Mordechai is making, and I wonder what prompted him to say that. Hmm, it's an interesting one. I would have imagined that when you have the temple as the center of your entire Jewish experience, that that would define you as a religion, not as a nation. In other words, if you had to tell me that the nation, that the Jewish people were centered around the country of Israel, and then the country was where we were ousted from and were placed in exile, then I would definitely agree that at that time we were like a nation. But 
if you're going to say that it's the temple that was taken from us, and the temple is obviously a place of religious, ritualistic engagement, then why would you say that it's without the temple that we became more religious or more defined as a religion? Such an interesting suggestion. Okay, something to think about. That's what makes this interesting, is that people have all kinds of uh, angles and attitudes and insights. So let's talk for a moment about the Shekhinah. Let's talk about this, two things that we're going to say about the Shekhinah, about the divine presence. Just to go back to that anonymous SMS, why did God not remove his divine presence from the world with the destruction of the temple? So first of all, there's a fascinating piece in the Talmud that says, Wherever we've been through the course of our exile, now this is 2,000 years worth of exile, and we've been to many places under very interesting circumstances. Some of the places were relatively hospitable. Some of the places were, as we know very well, outright hateful. All they wanted was to either kick us out or kill us. But what's interesting is the Talmud says, and this is what's so fascinating, the Talmud says wherever it is that we as a Jewish nation moved, the Shekhinah accompanied us. That's the expression. It says, Golul Edom Shekhinah Imohem. When they went into the first diaspora following the destruction of the second temple, so they went into what was called then the Edomite kingdom, which is basically what you and I would call the Roman Empire. So we were fanned out from literally east to west amongst uh, countries or, I guess, uh, what, what would you call them? Whatever of the Roman Empire, so it says there clearly that the Shekhinah, the divine presence, came with us. Not only that, the Talmud goes a step further, and it identifies that wherever you had the greatest amount of Jewish life, that means the greatest number of people, but equally importantly, the greatest level of engagement with Judaism. So where you had the big academies and the great yeshivas, that's where the greatest, now hear this, that's where the greatest expression of divine presence was to be found. So that implies, hang on a second, that Shekhinah is not a fixed entity. It's not one Shekhinah, one divine presence that is located in one particular place. It implies almost as if to say that there are gradings of divine presence. Almost as if to say there are different levels of divine experience that a person could have, and in certain environments you have a greater or more intense experience of the divine, and in other environments you have a less intense experience of the divine. So that's that's also something to put into the picture. However, to say that God did not remove his Shekhinah with the destruction of the temple is correct, because look, there you see it says that the divine presence accompanied us through all the various places in the evolution of our diaspora, the divine presence accompanied us, number one. Number two, and this is probably more directly related to our conversation over here today, you know, you know very well that if you travel to the Holy Land, you'd be going to Israel. And you know very well that if you're in the Holy Land and you want to go to its holiest city, then you'd be headed to Jerusalem. And you know that when you go to Jerusalem, if you want to go to the holiest place, you'd be going to the Kotel, to the Western Wall. Now, what makes that so holy? Is It, it looks like some leftover relic of what was once a beautiful, brilliant temple epicenter of Jewish life, but now it's just a ruin. So what makes it so holy? Exactly that. We're told that the divine presence has never left the Kotel, has never left the Western Wall. And that's probably where this question stems from. Why did God not remove his divine presence at the time of the destruction? It's still there. What do you think about that? Love to hear your views on 34519 by SMS. Otherwise, email 
on air at chaifm.com or tweet at chaifm. You can tweet me directly as well at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So there we are. We're talking about the divine presence. We're talking about the Shekhinah because uh, I, I, initiated, I initiated the conversation over here today about the loss of the temple in Jerusalem, something that we're mourning as a Jewish community at this time of the year, as we do every year. My question was, what did we really lose over there for you? Did you, do you feel like we lost anything? And some interesting things coming up. One person saying we've lost, uh, the sense of unity. The other, another person saying we've lost our connection to God. In fact, somebody else just, just sent the same message. We've lost connection. By the way, isn't it interesting? Somebody says here just the word connection. Now that could mean connection to God or it could mean connection to each other and perhaps a little bit of both. But then we had this SMS asking why did God not remove his Shekhinah, his divine presence from the world at the time of the destruction? Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's just understand what that means because we are told that the divine presence has accompanied the Jewish people through all the various places that we traveled most of them, by the way, unwillingly through the course of this goddess, through the course of the exile and we're told that the divine presence remains at the Western Wall. So what actually does it mean to say that the Shekhinah was in the temple if the Shekhinah is still there? So I think it's important for us to know that there are various layers and levels of Shekhinah. It's not an homogenous experience. For example, we're told if you've ever studied Perkavot, the Ethics of the Fathers, it talks over there about the fact that when you have 10 people together studying Torah, the Shekhinah, the divine presence rests with them. And then it says the truth is that even five people who study together, the divine presence is with them. And then even three and two, and eventually concludes that any individual who sits and studies Torah, it is at that time that the divine presence is with them. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to identify. Obviously, we can't be talking about the same thing. It would make no sense to say that the same level of divine presence is available to a group of 10 as to an individual. So that straight away helps us to, to understand and appreciate what's going on over here. In fact, according to Jewish mysticism, Shechina, divine presence, is actually a lesser manifestation of God. I'll say that again. It's a lesser manifestation of God than what, for example, was available in the temple. In the temple experience, you got to exposure to more than the divine presence. Let's just play a word game over here for a second to get to understand what this means. So the word Shekhinah is related to the word Shachain, which means to dwell, or in modern Hebrew, you can even say Shachain, your neighbor. That implies somebody who's in the same realm as you. Neighbor, we share a neighborhood. We live in the same environment. Now, you can't really say that about God. You can't say that God lives in our environment. God's way beyond our environment. God is infinite. Our, our environment is finite, so they wouldn't really add up. What are we saying when we say Shechina, is automatically we're saying a filtered or limited version of divine revelation is available in this place. The minute you say Shechina, you're automatically implying that it is somehow a downgrade from God's full-blown infinite self. It's that which can dwell, that which can be in this neighborhood. Now, of course, that's a lot more than what we have naturally, Naturally, we don't feel God's presence. Naturally, we don't see God's hand. We believe in God. We believe that things happen because God orchestrates them. But you don't see it. You have to believe it. So what happens over here 
at the, when we talk about Shekhinah, is we talk about, well, now, now you can actually sense something. Now you can actually feel something. But you need to know that what you're sensing could very well be a limited version of what God will allow you to sense or allow you to experience, which is a whole lot more than what you get in normal life and infinitely less than what he has to share. So when we use the word Shekhinah and we say that in spite of the destruction of the temple, there is still Shekhinah, there is still divine presence in that place, or there is still divine presence that accompanies us through all the journeys of the Jewish people around the world, which means that there are multiple locations at any given time that have access to Shekhinah. So we need to acknowledge that, yes, absolutely. It's not a, it's not a huge chap. It's not something you wouldn't have expected. If you're in a place of holiness, you must experience, you must expect a little bit more godliness in that place than you would normally have. Doesn't mean it's anywhere close to the experience that they had in the temple. And that's, that's one of the big things that we lost was that high level of exposure or exposure to such a deep element of godliness. That's what we're lacking in today's world. So when you identify that we don't have unity in today's world, that's a repercussion. Because when you lose that sense of awareness of God, you lose the sense of unity in the world. The unity between people, the fact that the world is all there for a singular purpose, and we each have our role to play in that purpose. That's when wheels start to come off, is when you're in a perspective or when you're in a state of what the, actually if you look at King David calls it in Tehillim, in a state of sleep. You don't see things that you know how it is when you're sleeping. You don't see, literally. There are those people who sleep with their eyes open. It's a bit freaky. But you don't see. And your mind is in a jumble. That's called dreaming. So things just don't necessarily have to make sense and you still accept them. That's how we are without this temple. We don't have that guidance. We don't have that reality. There's no place on earth that you could go to and you'll just see like they used to see then, miracle after miracle, or you just walk in and you would have this incredible overbearing sense of godliness. And then you could take that home with you and it could keep you inspired and going for X amount of months until your next visit. And typically you were supposed to visit three times a year. So you had these recharges on an ongoing basis. And there was a natural flow because we believe very strongly that when you've got an intense experience of godliness in a central location it will have a knock-on effect on the rest of the world and so the whole world would have had just a little bit more uh, apparent godliness than what we have today by the way by the way yes that's what we've lost but there is an upside to it as well because like it or not the wonderful experience of the temple was in the temple and the rest of the world was not necessarily aware of it if they had been aware of it, then that same Roman army that had come to destroy the temple, had they been aware of what the temple really means, not because they had heard about it, because they had experienced it, they would have sent those, so, those same legions to protect the temple. So there was a downside. The downside was the high-intensity experience of godliness was limited to that little precinct of oh, really not, not very big, really not a very big area, and that left people with the potential to go against and to live a life in contrast to those great values and that great sensitivity and that great awareness. And that's why we believe that there has to be another temple, a messianic temple. That's why built into our faith is not only a coming of a, an individual, a Mashiach, but that there would be a restoration of the temple, except it would operate completely differently. It would be a temple that would channel awareness of God throughout the whole world. So a little different, a little different uh, to what most people 
think. Uh, cute one over here. Somebody said, my question originally was, what do you think we have lost with the loss of the temple? So here's a cute one. Cheski says, 2,000 years. We've lost 2,000 years. Uh, it is cute, but then it, uh, when you think about it, it's actually, hang on a second. Mm-mm, that's not how we look at it. We do not look at the world from a perspective of we've lost 2,000 years. Because from our perspective, as I've just mentioned, when the intensity of godly experience was limited to the temple. The world wasn't really as it should have been. It, there was a wonderful place. There was this little escape room that you could go into and you could really suck in and ingest all the greatest spiritual power and then take it with you to the world. But the world was still the world. And that's what we've been doing for the last 2,000 years is we've been doing this behind-the-scenes kind of upgrade of the world bringing little pockets of awareness of God on a much lower grade than what was available in the temple. But what's important is in places that the temple hadn't previously touched. And so we haven't wasted the last 2,000 years. We've effectively been doing all the legwork so that when the next temple will be constructed by Mashiach, the world will be in a position to all benefit from that divine presence. And you won't only have to be there. It's a Profound concept when you think about it. It's a whole different world to what we're used to. And that's very much what we look forward to. Your thoughts, 34519 or at Chai FM. What do you think about what we've lost with the loss of the temple? Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So wrapping up over here, we were talking today about the temple. This is a subject that I think we could expand on. You know what? I feel we do that every time. Whatever it is, any topic that comes up from a Jewish perspective could be spoken about and explored and unpacked literally for days on end. And I, I, I don't say that flippantly. That's really the way that it is. Yeah, today we were talking about the temple, talking about what is it that we lost at the time of the destruction of the temple. Primarily what we lost was the access to experience of God at will. You could literally travel to the temple, walk into that precinct, and experience a high level of godly exposure, the kind of thing you normally only read about in mystical texts. That's what you experienced. We don't have that right now. Having said that, two things are really important. Number one, we believe that we will have it again. It's a fundamental Jewish belief. We believe that God doesn't tease us and then pull out the rug from under us. We believe that if he gave us a temple and he gave us the promise of a temple, there will be another temple. We believe that that temple will be the best thing that ever happened to the entire world, not just to the Jewish people. We believe that that temple will be the channel of world peace, that it will be a place of consciousness. It will be a a conduit of awareness in the whole world that will improve all of our lives, that people will not be jealous of each other and people won't be angry with each other. There will be no hate. You know, all the wonderful things you read about in the media, they won't be there. Because it will just be an incredible place of peace. Or as somebody said to me uh, the other day, somebody said to me, it would be like 24 degrees all day, every day. And he said, I don't mean that physically. It's a cute way of, of describing it. The other side of the coin is we believe absolutely that we are the protagonists who are going to make that happen. So we don't believe, sit back one day, don't worry, there will be this beautiful experience of godly awareness because there will be another temple. No, we don't believe that. We believe that every single time. That means if you go right now and you either do another mitzvah or at this time that you're specifically, but any time, or you read up on it, school yourself, find out more about this temple, what it means, why it's significant. Those are the things that create the spiritual framework into which 
this physical temple will be built. There is no point in saying, all right, that's it. We're going to go. We're going to start a project tomorrow and lay foundations and build a temple. It doesn't work that way. Our job is to create the spiritual framework. God will green light the temple when it's the appropriate time. But that's what we're supposed to be doing at this time of, our, of the year. I suppose all year, but this time of the year it's more acute. So just think, there is something significant that was removed from us. It was that tangible, conscious experience of God. And we've got to kind of put it back together again. So that leaves some responsibility on our shoulders. It also helps us to shift this time of the year just simply from being a morbid time of the year to being a call to action. What are we going to do? And specifically at this time of the year, we focus on, number one, studying about the temple. Number two, learning how to treat each other better. Those are the things that bring about that experience. So may God transform these three weeks of mourning into times of joy as the traditional wish goes. May you have joy in your life. And please, God, we should all be able to share positive and uplifting experiences together. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a great week ahead.